Welcome to this AMR audio interview, sponsored by ASME Applied Mechanics Reviews and the Applied Mechanics Division within ASME. I'm your host, Harry Dankovich, and also the editor of Applied Mechanics Reviews. Applied Mechanics Reviews is an international review journal that serves as a premier venue for dissemination of material across all sub-disciplines of applied mechanics and engineering science, including fluid and solid mechanics, heat transfer, dynamics and vibration, and applications. This series of AMR audio interviews features personal reflections of my guests on matters pertaining to all aspects of applied mechanics research, including past, current, and predicted research trends, a professional career in science and academia, scientific dissemination and peer review, public engagement and impact, and curricular innovation and developments. I hope that you find the AMR interviews a valuable complement to the perhaps less personal and more technically focused material available through the AMR journal, as well as other technical journals in the area of applied mechanics. I'm delighted to introduce today's guest, Professor Melanie Hunt, Dick and Dottie Heyman Professor of Mechanical Engineering at the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena, California. Professor Hunt is an international authority on transport phenomena in dry and liquid-saturated granular flows and powders, whose work extends across both geophysical and industrial applications. Following completion of a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering in 1983 from the University of Minnesota, she went on to pursue graduate work at University of California, Berkeley, earning her Master of Science degree in 1985 and her PhD in 1987, both in mechanical engineering, under the advisorship of Professor Chang Lin Tian, who went on to serve as Chancellor of UC Berkeley between 1990 and 1997. In her dissertation, titled Non-Darcyan Convection in Packed Sphere and Fibrous Media, Professor Hunt considered effects of porosity and non-uniform convective flow velocities in the determination of reactor cooling rates for catalytic converters, arriving at model formulations that provided close agreement with experimental data without the need for empirical approximations. This collaboration with Professor Tien was documented in papers in the International Journal of Heat and Mass Transfer, in the Journal of Heat Transfer, and in the Journals of Chemical Engineering Science and Chemical Engineering and Processing, respectively. Professor Hunt joined the Caltech faculty in 1988, was promoted to full professor in 2001, and held the William R. Keenan Jr. Professorship in Mechanical Engineering during 2012 and 2013. In 2002, she took on the responsibility of Executive Officer for Mechanical Engineering and held this position until 2007, when she was appointed to the Vice Provost position. Among her duties as Vice Provost, she chaired the Online Education Committee overseeing Caltech's development of massive open online courses. She was the principal investigator on a $6 million award from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation concerned with achieving diversity in science and engineering and developed an international faculty, research, and student exchange with the Gwangju Institute of Science and Technology in South Korea. Professor Hunt's research was recognized with a Presidential Young Investigator Award from the National Science Foundation in 1989 and with the ASME Pi Tau Sigma Gold Medal in 1993 for outstanding achievements within 10 years of graduation. In a series of publications starting with a conference paper in 2003, Professor Hunt and her collaborators investigated the characteristic booming sounds emanating from certain sand dunes during avalanches. In the paper Solving the Mystery of Booming Sand Dunes, published in 2007 in Geophysical Research Letters, it was argued that the typical frequency of the generated sound was a result of constructive wave interference associated with features of the dune, rather than the average grain size, as previously surmised. The phenomenon and the findings of Professor Hunt's research group were subsequently featured in episodes of Nova Science Now on PBS and National Geographic Wild Spaces in 2005 and 2010, respectively. The interview you're about to hear was recorded in Pasadena, California on November 12, 2014. Professor Hunt, welcome to this AMR audio interview. Thank you. 
this is a timely day because today the Rosetta probe is landing a, a smaller probe on a comet. And uh, as comets are sort of loosely held together, pieces of, of matter and granular small particles and, and larger particles, I thought it was quite appropriate given your, your long-term interest in, mm -hmm. in these sort of things. And it also resonated a little bit with a science paper that I think you published in, or a reflection in science magazine that you published in 2013 mm -hmm. on a paper dealing with uh, uh, locomotion in granular environments, uh, where you also mention the spirit rover that got stuck on, on Mars because of sand getting you know, caught in its wheels. So I, I'm wondering if you've kept up with this and if this is sort of uh, you know, interesting to you. It, it, it is interesting. And I had a, a postdoctoral scholar uh, who I just saw last week. She's now at the University of Maryland. Uh, again, she's been very interested in the comets and how would you think about the granular processes associated with trying to capture or take samples. That's true, yeah. You know, as I try to think about designing instruments that could penetrate yeah. these bodies, they don't know what they're going to be interacting with. Right. And so it's very similar, I think, to the kinds of challenges when they first thought about going to the moon. Mm -hmm. They weren't sure what the surface was going to be mm -hmm. like, and they didn't know what kind of digging equipment they might need or excavating equipment they might need. You know, it's just this unknown. I think the same is true here. Right. In the science uh, reflection, mm -hmm. it was a commentary on a paper that was yes. published by other authors mm -hmm. on locomotion through granular environments. And, of course, that's important for uh, engineering applications, but it's also uh, interesting that many animals have solved the problem. Mm -hmm. They, as you, as you described, uh, are able to manipulate individual grains for the purpose of propulsion. Right. How does that work? I, again, I think the, the whole notion is that we have not designed vehicles that move as efficiently as as animals seem to move mm -hmm. on these kinds of uh, unusual terrains. Mm -hmm. And so part of that uh, science paper was just to kind of look at efficiency of different vehicles across right. scales and, and different terrains. And it was really just to, to give some perspective on where we're at. Right. And, and again, I think the challenge when you think about going to, to different uh, planets or asteroids or comets, uh, is you're not certain what that sure. landscape is going to be. And so you need to think about doing something that's very robust. And As I mm -hmm. described in the introduction, you have expertise both for dry granular flows, but mm -hmm. also a lot of work uh -huh. in the liquid-saturated right. domain. Is there a benefit to having liquid at the uh -huh. foot contact interface? Would that, it might would be that change the properties? Yeah, of... I would think it, it absolutely would. Liquid in the presence of a granular material, it, it changes the properties mm -hmm. significantly, even a small bit of liquid. Uh, that was really some of the things that we did in the sand dunes, mm -hmm. just in terms of wave propagation. Our analysis of why the booming dunes happen uh, really depends on the fact that the wave speed in dry material is so low. Mm -hmm. And a little bit of water, a little bit of liquid in there between the contacts changes it considerably. And How does it do that? Uh, it just, you know, if you've got these dry, discrete contacts between, you stick a pulse here, the wave does not travel very efficiently. Is there too much dissipation? Or? There's too much dissipation uh -huh. in those contacts uh -huh. um, and just a little bit of water. And so there are studies looking at wave propagation in, in uh, granular materials with a small bits of liquid, and you can see a sizable change in the mm -hmm. wave speed. The things that we did out in the desert were really trying to understand what we really tried to do is to measure those wave speeds. Um, and, and what you really see is within a dune, the, the wave speed varies tremendously. And we think you know, at some depth that there probably is a little bit of cementing in the grain that was caused by water. By the water. But we know when we go out uh, that if a little, there's a little bit of moisture present, mm -hmm. we don't get the same sounds being generated. 
I mean, at the surface. At the surface, I yes. See. And so actually, the, the, you mentioned the National Geographic. Mm-hmm. And National Geographic went out with us, and it had been planned for months. months. <laughs> um, and they picked a day in July <laughs> when it was convenient for them. It, it actually rained oh, up in no. Death Valley maybe two days before. Uh-huh. And so it was a day we normally would not have gone uh-huh. because we know just a little bit of moisture makes a difference. Uh-huh. Um, and so actually if you see the National Geographic video, what you can actually see is the sand looks a little wet. They dubbed in the sound. So oh, I'm embarrassed recording. to say whenever, uh-huh. whenever I show it, I say we didn't do this. We had nothing to do with it. But because when we went out there, there's a little sure. bit of moisture. You don't hear the same sounds. And How tall are these dunes? Uh, those dunes up in uh, they're in Eureka Dunes up in the northern part of Death Valley. They're about six hundred feet above above the desert floor. I think they're about the highest in the yes. North America. They're, yes. they're spectacular. Yes. And so if you if you see the National Geographic video, I mean it's it's just beautiful scenery. I mean it's just and the, the avalanche will last for a significant period of time or uh, is it a relatively short event. The avalanche, you know, up there it can last for you know maybe up to a minute, oh. and so then you can hear the sound, and the sound can be very very loud. Uh-huh. Um, but if you go again when there's a little bit of moisture, yeah, you're, you're disappointed by it. So National Geographic actually went back and then oh, re-recorded yeah. the sound and generated it again and re-recorded it and then dubbed it over. Is this so. is this a known phenomenon in other places, parts of the world uh, as well? Or it's is- you know there are about forty places that we documented. Okay. Uh, where there have been reports. Uh, there's very few of those places actually have scientific measurements, uh, but at least in terms of how people describe the sound, mm-hmm. it, it sounds like it would be consistent with the kinds of things that we see and kinds of things we hear. There was a theory previously about why this was generated, yes. and, and in yes. fact that the frequency could be different. Yes. If you constructed a pile with different size grains, for example. Yes. But instead you found that this was sort of a waveguide phenomenon, a, not a yes. size. Yes. So physically, again, I think when we first started going out, we would go out uh, kind of the southern part of Death Valley, and, and the dunes aren't quite as high, but you absolutely can feel the wave. You know, I mean, you can oh, really? feel... You, so you what, can what feel, frequency is this? It's about 80 hertz, okay. 80 to 100 hertz. The sense that somehow this was associated with the size of a grain, which is about 200 microns, it just didn't seem to make any sense. <laughs> I see, I see. Um, and, and again, what we always kind of thought is that with that kind of low tone, if you think about a musical instrument... You need something of the size of a cello to get something Uh, about 80 hertz. uh, And, you know, if you take a violin, you're getting more of about 150 to 200 hertz. You know, you need the cello going to the bass um, to really get those low tones. And so we always kind of thought about there's got to be some other length scale involved with this problem besides the grain size. So, but the length scale is the size of the... Dune the or the, the length scale. The top? What we think is that there's this dry region at the top. Right. There's moisture, but it gets dried out by the sun. Mm-hmm. So there's this dry region at the top, and it's that length scale that mm-hmm. that sets that that sets. So is, the it, so is it realizable in the lab environment, or, is, or the scales are simply the, too large? This this is something that uh, people always ask me. You know, if you could do it in the lab, you, you probably could. Um, this is uh, you know research area we never had much money on, and I so see. the idea of trying to have enough sand and yes. do it in the lab. It was just, you know, we just didn't have but the it, resources clearly, to do it. But it clearly, if you pardon the pun, resonates <laughs> yes, with the yes. public, right? It's a, it's, it's an exciting, it you know, sort of natural phenomenon that yeah. needs explanation. Yeah. For us, what was interesting is that we took out, you know, really probably 200 people over those years that we did it. We took out several classes here mm-hmm. at Caltech. Mm-hmm. And we'd take out high school students. We'd take out Caltech staff. We'd yeah. take out my colleagues. Yeah. And that was part of the interest was sure. really that you can bring people out and see something unusual and partake in science and partake in the measurements. And 
for us, they were uh, these other participants. They would we'd get them to carry up equipment uh-huh, <laughs> uh-huh. up in the hot desert sun, yeah. uh, which was tr- good for us. Yeah. But it was part of that. It was you know this interesting science experiment, yeah. and we could involve other people in. Someplace on my shelf, I've got this book, Tales of Travel, which, again, documented explorations out in deserts around the world. But, again, mm-hmm. it was written in kind of early 1900s and uh, talking about different places where they've heard these sounds. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, so it's something that, again, actually, if you go back to Marco Polo, writing his right? writings as well, he also refers to uh, the, the kind of the desert sounds. Okay. Actually, Charles Darwin did in his huh. uh, Voyage of the Beagle as wow. well. So it's something that people had heard about. And actually, what was interesting for us is that we were by no means the first people at Caltech to go out there and start thinking about it. <laughs> There's really a series of faculty members yeah. over many years yeah. that had thought about this phenomena and, and trying to understand what was going on. An interesting aspect of your work is this sort of combination of, of heat transfer, solid mechanics, mm-hmm. fluid mechanics. Mm-hmm. It really has all of these things mm-hmm. uh, because of this, the, the medium that you're working in. Mm-hmm. The, the topics often are compartmentalized, but mm-hmm. this field brings everybody together. Yes, yeah. It, it's part of what we do here at Caltech. Um, again, because there's so few people that we, I think, feel less confined to one field, mm-hmm. that we feel we can just do what we need to do to, to understand the, the work. Because we're small, uh, we just kind of spread out mm-hmm. <laughs> over multiple areas, mm-hmm. and that that works well. But that so, trains students to yes. think broadly and yes. openly about across disciplinary yes. boundaries or artificial boundaries as well. Yes, absolutely. So what do we, what do we do at other institutions to promote this understanding to really yeah. you know, break those those boundaries and, and especially since the boundaries in the undergraduate curriculum are very much course defined. It, it, they are. They are very course defined. Um, and again, so you know, a place small place like Caltech. You can't just rely on mechanical engineers to educate the mechanical engineers. We have to have everyone else here. We just couldn't do it otherwise. Mm-hmm. So it's a necessity here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's what can happen in small places. Even when we do hiring process, we can't just rely on the mechanical engineers to do mm-hmm. it. We, we don't rely on the mechanical engineers to do it. We always bring other people in. And uh, the same in terms of uh, the three-year evaluation, same in terms of the tenure. Mm-hmm. We always have other people involved in what we're doing in, in those decisions mm-hmm. that we make. And, again, I think that's a good thing. It, it really helps in terms of the research, and it helps students. If students can see that they can go talk very openly with faculty across areas. Again, I think that helps the research as well. Certainly, I would have never have done the the research work that we did out in the desert um, if I didn't have a student who took some of those geophysics classes. She was the one who made the connection with my colleagues over in geophysics. It, it just it happened naturally here mm-hmm. because you know she couldn't constrain right. herself. Yeah. We, we just don't have enough in mechanical engineering to to give her everything she needed, right. and so she just allowed herself to go out and kind of make those other connections, and that really helped the research. So this was a study of a naturally occurring phenomenon mm-hmm. with, with granular properties. Uh, a lot of the other work you did, I, as mm-hmm. I quoted early on, I guess the application was catalytic converters, you know, situations where you have yeah. engineered granular materials, right. with one of the ideas being that a granular material has a much larger surface area. And you can get more interaction. Yes, that's Is certainly that... where you use it for for catalytic reactors. I mean, that's certainly the, the reason you do it. We did use that as one of the, the examples mm-hmm. that we that we referred to. But there are really certainly many other uh, reactor problems where it's really mm-hmm. flow in a packed bed. When Chang was doing it again, some of it was just flows and things like insulating materials is uh-huh. what he was interested uh-huh. in, and and really trying to understand those processes in the experiments. Um, 
what we used were different materials, different fibrous materials, and trying to understand. Let's see, I still have this pieces. won't make it through audio, but okay, we have samples still, here. <laughs> still, have, still have pieces yeah. from what we used. Um, it was really trying to understand, you know, as you change the the properties of the porous material. These uh -huh. were, were these these uh, metallic fibrous materials, you know, as you change the properties, including the thermal conductivity, but it was also the porosity, the permeability. And you think about flow through these kinds of materials, it was really a combination of thinking about the mixing that's caused by the fibers themselves, mm -hmm. along with the fact that you get conduction through these fibers, mm -hmm. exploring both of those aspects. Mm -hmm. And then uh, using that uh, same kind of analysis that we did there to also think about these pack beds. Many of the examples with pack beds were chemical mm -hmm. reactor examples, and that's what got us into mm -hmm. into some of the other more chemical engineering kinds of aspects of the work. The mm -hmm. structure that you show me mm -hmm. here, you know, it looks rather random in the way that mm -hmm. it's put together. Mm -hmm. So, so there's some sort of average porosity, average mm -hmm. properties of the yes. material. Are there ways that one can uh, learn from this type of analysis in order to purposefully, these days, when it's possible to lay down three-dimensional structures through depositing and so forth, can one build structures to have better properties? I, I, I would think so. Uh -huh. Yeah, I would absolutely think so. So in terms of the heat transfer processes, by putting this kind of material in there, again, if you're thinking about heat transfer some, from some surface and you want to enhance that heat transfer, you get enhancement here because of the mixing and you get enhancement because of the extended surfaces. The price you pay, of course, is a very high pressure drop. As an undergraduate at the University of Minnesota, I had worked for Dick Goldstein, and he had recommended that I talk with Chang. Um, and so I'd gone out there the summer or the spring before I started graduate school, met yeah. Chang. Um, and it was at that point he said, you know, if you're interested in thinking about heat transfer work, that he'd be happy to take me. And so I had gone actually out this, there the summer before I started graduate school to work for him. Oh, so you did some research mm -hmm. during that summer? During oh. the summer before oh, I started good. graduate yeah. school, yeah. In your undergrad, did you focus on any problems related to heat transfer? Uh, yes, yes. So, I, so I worked for Dick Goldstein. So he hired me as uh, I was a sophomore, an undergraduate oh, wow. sophomore. And yeah. so they worked for, you know, from sophomore year to when I graduated mm -hmm. in his lab. And I, you know, I helped the graduate students with their experiments. They actually had a calibration lab um, where they did uh, a lot of calibrating of different types of thermometers. We did some things with different pieces of equipment that were instrumented with thermocouples to make sure that we understood those measurements. Um, and then he had this facility to calibrate um, temperature measuring devices. Yeah. But when you joined from the Goldstein's lab... Mm -hmm. That was because it was it was a position available. Yes. Because you had a, taken a class with him. No, or? I just applied. You know, I applied. Yeah. Why, what made you apply? Uh, boy, because I was interested in mechanical engineering, and it was an opening. And uh, you know, I was interviewed by uh, one of the staff members who worked with him, worked for him. And I was a good student, and so I think they were interested in me. Um, you know, the person who interviewed me asked me if I knew how to fix a car. Okay. <laughs> and the answer was? <laughs> no. But I, could, I told them, actually, I told them that it was very clear. I could fix a sewing machine. Oh, okay. and, yeah. and he was, he was you know, and, and, and I could fix a sewing machine. Uh, um, and so I think it was an answer he never expected to right, hear. Right. Um, but at least I had some experience in fixing something, something and that's what he wanted parts, to know. Yeah. That, that I had some skills besides. Start off with, being yeah. a good student, sure. right, that I could work in the lab, I think, was the whole. Was and the when you started, did you anticipate it growing into a three-year commitment and then subsequently no. into a graduate no. program no. and an academic again, career? Dick, Dick Goldstein was, you know, a terrific 
advisor. You know, uh-huh. again, he, so I, he wasn't my advisor. He was just, he was the head Research. of the department and yeah. he was uh, overseeing this lab and yeah. he was the one who hired me and he was terrific and he kept encouraging me to mm. study mechanical engineering and stay with it. Do you imagine if, if there had been an opening in another lab, possibly on some other topic yeah. that, yeah. you know, things would have yeah. looked very different? It could have, it could have, yeah, uh-huh. yeah absolutely. Yeah, he, he was... He but you was, were very comfortable where you were. There, there was a lot of support. Uh, yes. It was an obvious way forward. Yes. Again, he was he and he was the person who encouraged me to go to graduate school. And again, at the time, he I, I remember him saying it to me, and I thought, why would I want to go to graduate school? <laughs> um, but at the time, again, it was um, early... 19, I, well, I graduated in 83. Yeah. It was kind of a rece- it was recessionary period. Yes, Again, yes. I think the job prospects were not very interesting. Um, he had really encouraged me to go to graduate school, and, and I took that seriously. But you had role models, presumably, in his lab of yes, several exactly. grad students. And there were, and there were they, a good number of grad students, and, and they were, I saw what they were doing. atmosphere was good, and yes. Yes, okay. and yes, absolutely. Your pace at, at uh, Berkeley was highly satisfactory, it mm-hmm. appears to me, uh, you know, starting in 83 and then graduating in yeah. 1987. The master's degree, was that a non-thesis? Was just, it was, was a just thesis, the, but oh, it, was a part thesis. Of, it was really part of my, uh-huh. my, my PhD thesis. Uh-huh. Shang Tian didn't want anyone staying around very long. Oh, is that right? Oh, okay. yeah. He, yeah. Would, he, he, he would make sure we were working at high, high speed okay. all the time yeah. and uh, did not want students to linger really encouraged us to continue moving on my husband mm-hmm. my, now my husband he mm-hmm. wasn't at the time was also working for for chang okay. you know again both of us yeah. <laughs> even 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 he didn't realize we were, we were together uh-huh. he just really encouraged us yeah. to, to to move on do you remember at any point feeling like i'm not really prepared for this this is going to take a little, you know this is a hurdle that i'm not sure how to overcome there probably were times like that. Yeah, yeah. suppressed them. <laughs> yeah, I suppressed them. I again, I, you know, again, I think you know what I remember from grad school. It was just those candidacy exams and things like that. Oh, yes. oh God, what I liked much more yes. was working in the lab. You mm. know, again, I, I that to me was much more natural. Mm. And all those candidacy exams and everything you had to pass, so that's where I kind of think about, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that okay. was the awful part right. of grad school. Okay. Working yeah. in the lab and kind of doing the, the research, that was a piece that I really uh, liked. At the time, uh, you know, Cheng Lintian, he held various administrative roles, so he was a very busy person. So you always wanted to go in there knowing what you wanted to tell him mm-hmm. and being prepared. This is what I've done. This is what I've gotten. Boom. You know, to use his time wisely. And, and again, I just always remember, you know, wanting to tell him where I was at, what the next step was. Mm. This is my plan. You know, he would want to know what was happening in the lab, what was going on, and boom, 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 right, boom, right, boom. Right. You know? <laughs> but he presented himself in a way that gave you confidence that taking such opportunities during your professional mm-hmm. career was worth it and yes. rewarding yes. and manageable, yes. even with other interests in parallel. Yes, yes. Again, I think he, you know, again, he was a great mentor mm. and just really enjoyed the people aspect mm. of a university. Mm. And he enjoyed how universities work. He certainly thought a lot about who the university is serving, especially a public university like Berkeley, mm. trying to make sure that it was someplace where people from all backgrounds could actually go. Mm. I, again, I think that was extremely important for mm. him. Much of his motivation was being a minority in a field. You know, he was, I think, the first Asian American to lead a big major. public uh-huh. ma- major research university. Uh-huh. So, so you mentioned a, a high clip, a high pace. Mm-hmm. You know, getting people out uh, within mm-hmm. the, you know reasonable time, four years being mm-hmm. you know possibly some reasonable minimum. Yep, or, that was probably <laughs> okay. And then was it also in the in the cards uh, as part of the mentorship or part of the development? 
that academic research careers was the objective, or were people not, going all kinds not, of places? No, no, all, all kinds of places. Mm -hmm. So again, my husband now uh, at the time was working for, or he was sponsored through Hughes Aircraft. Uh -huh. um, and so he was finishing up at Berkeley and he went back to what, what now is Boeing, what at the time was Hughes. Chang certainly liked people, seeing people going to academics, but he realized it wasn't for everyone by mm -hmm. any means. And uh, I think was just happy seeing people go so out and do things they like. Uh, in terms of academics, again, it was Chang. <laughs> Chang you know, he, again, he kind of said to me, you should be a professor. And I thought, oh, maybe I should. Again, it's somewhat like Dick Goldstein. I hadn't really thought about becoming a faculty member until he said it to me. Uh -huh. By the time I was finishing, Bruce, my husband, was already down here working back at Hughes. Mm -hmm. And so really what we had agreed is that I'd at least start by trying to see if I could find something in Southern California. Mm -hmm. uh, at the time, uh, Caltech had an ad mm -hmm. for someone in, in really in heat transfer and fluid mechanics. It was Rolf Sabursky um, had contacted uh, Cheng Tian and said, you know, do you have any students? Yeah. And then Cheng encouraged me to apply, and Caltech was actually looking right at that time. So what I always tell students is, you know, it worked for me, but it's was just luck that <laughs> yeah. that 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 timing and yeah. it was really it really was it was just luck and timing and uh, I think at the time Caltech was the only place in Southern California that actually had an ad, and I did try to reach out to the other schools Caltech and an ad they interviewed me they hired me. You're listening to an Applied Mechanics Reviews audio interview from November twelfth, two thousand fourteen with Melanie Hunt, Professor of Mechanical Engineering at the California Institute of Technology. I'm your host, Harry Dankovich. I mentioned several of the uh, uh, type of duties that you've uh, uh, had in, in your vice provost position, promoting diversity, also international engagement with universities. This Guangzhou, for example, was that a, an initiative that was sort of promoted from the grassroots up? Or, I, or it was, it was a, very much. And uh -huh. so that they're, they're, it's a very young university in South mm -hmm. Korea. They um, started out as a research institute. They started an undergraduate program just five years ago. They wanted to model their educational program on U.S. universities. Yeah. There's a Caltech alumnus on their faculty mm -hmm. and uh, who is familiar with the undergraduate programs. Mm -hmm. So actually when they first started coming, when they first started visiting, what they wanted to do was talk about undergraduate education, mm -hmm. uh, how to educate students at the highest level and how to engage undergraduates in research. Mm -hmm. And so we started out actually by them coming here, wanting information me, as really the vice provost who thought about educational things here at Caltech, mm -hmm. talking with them, them saying to us that they had resources. So we started out actually with a, an exchange in terms of undergraduates, undergraduate research. So our students okay. go there in the summer. We, we do between two and four students from Caltech going uh -huh. there and a similar number of their students coming here during mm -hmm. the summer. So it was really kind of an, a small undergraduate program that worked very, very well. Mm -hmm. And what they really wanted to have happen is more Caltech faculty to go and visit them. Yes. What I suggested is the best way for that kind of collaboration to happen is through research. Mm -hmm. And so it's really through the South Korean government then that they started funding collaborative research grants. Um, and so we're now up to nine collaborations oh. between um, faculty collaborations between uh, Caltech and Guangzhou. And again, I think they would like to see it continue to grow. And so we, um, again, this summer sent out a call for proposals, and really what we're looking for are strong collaborations, collaborations that make sense. Yeah, and again, right. really the ones that we have have been working out very, very well. Mm -hmm. 
you know, we've got a couple other examples of collaborations with other outside entities uh, and with the funding coming from someplace else. Mm-hmm. Our uh, mode of operation was just to find, find and fund collaborations that really work, where it makes sense, where there's really a dedicated faculty member from each campus and a research program that seems like it could benefit from the other group. Again, for this young university in South Korea, you know, they're very pleased. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're very, very, very pleased, and they find the the access to Caltech faculty and using Caltech kind of as a model of how to do higher education mm-hmm. um, as is very beneficial mm-hmm. to them. So this was very satisfying. This was feels yes. like an accomplishment. Yeah, uh, it, it is. In your... it so is. going also back to another yeah. item, I, I listed the massive online, yeah. massive open uh-huh. online courses, yeah. the MOOCs uh-huh. and, and Coursera and edX, right. I, th- right. I suppose, that we Caltech is working with. Both, right. This is obviously a, a recent development. Universities are, gra- are struggling with understanding whether this is going to revolutionize or simply drain resources to something that doesn't right. necessarily benefit right. the, the, our mission. Right. So how, how did your committee approach this, and, and what is Caltech's uh, vision, and how does it affect, if you would narrow it down also, to your discipline? So so for Caltech, really we got involved with this because we had faculty who wanted to do it, and we wanted to be able to give those faculty an opportunity to do so. We wanted to really experiment and see where it was going to take us, and so really the administration was willing to put in some resources. What was interesting is I uh, surveyed my colleagues about why we should do this. Really, the the main reason, uh, the top reason that would always come up is these methods may benefit Caltech students. By doing some of these recordings and allowing our students to go back or to watch them before may have a very positive benefit on the educational program here. Clearly, what I heard from students is, again, we're, we're a small school we don't teach all of our classes every year. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are, especially some of our specialty classes, we don't do it every year. Our graduate students were, were very positive about the notion of being able to access materials anytime, in, 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 you yeah. know, when they needed yes. it and, uh-huh. and not really when, when they're being taught. So, again, there really was a feeling that, that by doing some of this, we could really benefit but that's What's the happening? online part, that's not necessarily the, the massive open part. No. So then probably the second reason mm-hmm. was advertising Caltech more broadly and what we do more broadly. Mm-hmm. One of the early classes that we did was a course, really a neuroscience course, Drugs in the Brain. Caltech, we actually have a tremendous program in neuroscience, but people don't seem to know that mm-hmm. because we don't have a degree program in neuroscience. Oh. Getting that information out that this is something that we do here at Caltech, this is something that we do very, very well, mm-hmm. um, was really important. And that, that is the massive part. Uh, again, one of the other courses that we did this past year, um, really a, a planetary science course, mm-hmm. and it was done by Mike Brown. And Mike Brown is my colleague who said that Pluto is not a planet. Oh, and so he's the one to blame. He's the one to blame. <laughs> okay. um, but what he did was do the course so yes. that we also featured things that were happening at JPL. Yes, exactly. but really, and this was targeted at what level, would you say? It was actually kind of, it was a sophomore level class mm-hmm. here at Caltech, but he wanted to make it accessible to other people. Um, he told me one of his biggest critics was his mom, and his, okay. mom, <laughs> his mom wanted to understand what was going on. Uh-huh. Um, and so to be able to put together something high quality yeah. um, that really shows the kinds of things that Caltech does sure. to the world and the kinds of things that we're good at, especially with the JPL connection, mm-hmm. I, that's really important. 
The third reason, of course, people thought we maybe should do it that we that came up in my survey it was revenue generation and other ways for revenue generation. So far, we've we, we've lost a huge amount of money <laughs> in this enterprise. We've made very very yes. little. Um, there are schools that have made money. Is that right? Um, and and again, it's usually with the course where um, you can take it and apply it to your career. I may get this wrong. I think it was University of Maryland who had a course, an app development course, mm-hmm. where where they absolutely made money in it. But there, I think, very few courses like that. What I think other schools have done with their online courses, which we have not done here at Caltech, is to use some of the online materials to support either their professional development programs or their extension programs to make those connections. And so they won't see it from selling certificates from the online, right. but they'll get They'll use those materials in right. things where there is a fee, and they may be able to generate revenue that way. But um, it's not revolutionizing the way uh, we, we teach or educate. Uh, I, I, um, you know, I've got two kids in college. When I go to those schools, they talk about you know, flipping the they classrooms. They do talk about that. Yeah, they yeah. do. Yeah. Absolutely, they do. The faculty that have done it here at Caltech and use the flip model mm-hmm. – um, they're quite convinced that so students the, the, the do flip better. model meaning you you have most of the learning of, from from dry sources so to speak take place outside mm-hmm. of the classroom and then in the classroom it's much more active discussion. learning discussion mm-hmm. and so some of my colleagues have done uh, studies um, in what they've done here at Caltech and they are convinced that that it does work better mm-hmm. um, and again I think there's probably a lot a, a lot of benefit in it and I think we just need to keep thinking about it is it working better because the population that's being served is more able to take that in, or has that? Would it always have worked better? And simply, we didn't have the ways of accomplishing. I, I think. I, I think anything where you really engage the students and you get them to to bring in their ideas and feedback and talk with their their peers about what they're learning, I, my guess is they're going to just learn better. What I think has been interesting across the country is how much conversation there has been about teaching mm-hmm. and quality of teaching mm-hmm. and new ways of doing it. And again, I think that. You know, that certainly happened here, and I think that's good. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm on a committee at MIT mm-hmm. in terms of undergraduate education. And again, they've done an impressive job of, of making materials for one class available for other classes. Mm-hmm. We don't have to always rewrite the lecture on, on Fourier transforms. So how many copies mm-hmm. of a class on Fourier transforms do you need? I, uh, I mean, when, when, you're at, when you're confined to a physical space, then, of course, it's clear that you need many. But, yeah. but once this thing is available, I mean, there's so many websites that will tell you what you need to know if you, right. if you just needed to know it, so right. to speak, right? right? And then I guess in terms of actually learning and exercises and assessment and so forth, maybe there are fewer. Mm-hmm. But how many do you need? Yeah, I, I think that's a good question, yeah. And so, again, I think the role of a university, especially at the undergraduate level, um, I think we'll continue to to rethink a place like Caltech or a place like Illinois, where there are research opportunities. There's there's uh, design projects. There are um, other kind of interdisciplinary programs that students can be involved with. When you ask people to think about their college education. Mm-hmm. They're probably not going to talk about that math class that mm-hmm. they said and did all those mm-hmm. problems problems on. They're going to talk about that robot they designed. They're going to talk about um, the sand dunes. The, the sand dunes. Yeah. They're going to talk about all those other kinds of things. If all you can show is a transcript with some grades on it for a student mm-hmm. and not be able to demonstrate or have the student demonstrate what they learned, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think you're missing the mission of the university. Mm-hmm. And again, what I see students when I talk to them, when they come in and try to tell me when they want to apply for jobs or, or for uh, graduate school, 
is you get them talking about you know those other those robotic projects or the dunes or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be great if we thought about education in terms of capturing those mm-hmm. experiences. Mm-hmm. And so again, if it's some kind of portfolio or something else that captures really what a student has learned here mm-hmm. at this institution from the student standpoint. I want them to think about their experience more than just the A's and B's and C's sure. that they got. That the, I want them to really see the growth that they've had, you know, those opportunities that they've had, and really to emphasize to them, that's why you're here. It's all that other stuff. Mm. It's not just doing those homework problems. Mm. How, how would one, if I asked you, how would you do a portfolio in mechanical engineering? I, I, I don't quite know, um, but clearly it would be visual. Clearly they'd be able to show you, you know, somehow capture what their role was, their leadership roles. You know, how'd you come up with those ideas? You know, how did you take that? How did you explore it? When, when a student leaves Caltech and they feel good about leaving Caltech, they want to talk about all that stuff. Mm. If there's some other way we can capture that, for them to see what they've learned, for us to recognize what they learned, for them to be able to take it to an employer or to their parents or whoever. Mm-hmm. This is really what I did in my four years. Mm-hmm. But a portfolio mm-hmm. also would then potentially provide a continuity in a program. Mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. that, you know, as we, going back again to your undergraduate experience, yep. with the three years of a, of a research experience, yep. you, you had certain continuity because the pro, the, it continued and courses Absolutely. fed into that. Absolutely. In the absence of that, it's just a number of different individual exactly. parcels. And, and you forget, and, and students sometimes just don't, they miss the big picture. They, they miss what they've learned and they don't appreciate it the way they should. There must be better ways for them to reflect back on their education. And clearly, if you're just watching stuff online, it's not going to be the same as mm-hmm. what we think about in terms of a residential undergraduate program. Certainly, that's what we do for graduate students, right? We measure them by their thesis and their work and their presentations and their papers and the way they engage and the way they can talk about new ideas. You know, that's the way we think about it. And I think we can do more of that at the undergraduate level. I noticed a paper of yours, Mm -hmm. uh, and I can't recall the title right now, but it uh, involved going back to an experiment Uh, from uh the 50s. And revisiting, I suppose, a very important result. I'm interested in, in you know, mm-hmm. some, some different takes on this. Uh, number one, that particular experiment, that particular mm-hmm. researcher, and, and what the context was in which that was developed and, and why it was so important to mm-hmm. go back and revisit mm-hmm. it. And also, you know, some sort of broader understanding of the extent to which you and your work have gone back to, to look at uh, what others have said or done in the mm-hmm. past and, and understanding how certain things come and go and then need to come again. So this is a paper um, that was written uh, in 1954. The author was Ralph Bagnold, mm-hmm. who was uh, really kind of a citizen scientist. He had been a brigadier in the British Army, I guess. I and he had been in North Africa and had made a lot of observations about the... the this is during World War II? Or? World War II, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of observations about the deserts. Um, he had actually also written about these booming dunes. Um, but then came back and did some experiments really just in his lab at home. Um, experiments that people have consistently referenced. And there's actually a, a non-dimensional group that was named for him based upon really the results of this experiment. A non-dimensional ratio of various constants yes, it's, and parameters. Yes, it's, it's like, a, like a Reynolds number, yeah. but the density is, is the particle density, and then you really had a function of solid fraction in there too. What I'd think about is a Stokes number, so it's got a particle density rather than the fluid density. And so this paper had been re- referenced hundreds and hundreds of times, but what was interesting is no experiments that had ever followed up on it, no huh. simulations that had ever followed up on it. Who knew this? I mean, how, was this known? That, 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 uh, that no one had ever re- reproduced I mean, it? Yes. I mean, was it, sort of, was it felt like it wasn't necessary? Or, I, I guess or? it was felt it wasn't necessary, uh-huh. and that the, the, 
the, the results seem to be intuitively obvious, uh -huh. and so those experiments must actually show... Confirm what people confirm, expected. Exactly, uh -huh. confirm what people expected. And so we had been interested in some, some work, um, and we were submitting some things to, to NASA on kind of an experiment very similar to his, but, but kind of pushing our experimental results out further than he ever, ever did. And so it was really in that process I went back and I said, you know, I really want to understand everything that happened in his experiments and, and how he got there. And so then I started trying to really go back and take his data, and I wanted to replot it in different ways. Probably the first thing I realized is if I took his data, and there was a correlation um, of the data, what I realized is the data didn't really fit the correlation, and it didn't fit it very well at all. Okay. <laughs> and the correlation, of course, went along with the theory, but the data really didn't fit it. Huh. And so it was really showing that in this higher Bagnell number regime, the shear stress and the normal stress then went with the shear rate to the square power, so the factor of two. So if, again, if it was just a suspension, it would have gone linear. The, shear, the stresses would have gone linearly with sh the shear rate. And he said in this other regime, it went quadratically with the shear rate. Mm -hmm. But actually, if you plotted it, it was a 1.5 power. Not, mm -hmm. It was very close. It so, was really kind of really? right on the 1.5 power. But the not, square was expected. And, and, but the square was uh -huh, expected. Uh -huh. Um, and so I started kind of wondering, where do you get the 1.5 power? Really kind of after looking at the data, looking at the data, realizing that the experiment itself was tiny. You really actually only had a couple particles in either direction in this rheometer. What I realized is that the results, this square dependence or this 1.5 power dependence, it was really just secondary flows. It had nothing at all to do with the particles. It was the design of the experiment and the way he made the measurement that gave him that result. Mm. It was not these particle collisions or these interactions between particles mm. that were giving the result. You know, if he, he had a different rheometer, he would have gotten different measurements. Um, and so it's kind of realizing that even though people have referenced it hundreds and hundreds of times, the experiments don't support the conclusions um, and don't they don't support the analysis. But you, you decided to pursue this because you were interested in, in understanding something you knew of all these references. You assumed the result was correct. Yes, yes. And and for your own edification, was trying to explore it. Trying to explore it and to design a rheometer so that we could kind of extend what he had done. To go beyond what he had done, to but not beyond. to undermine what he had not, done. Not to undermine it at all, to go beyond what he had done. That was the original, the idea. So then realizing that hundreds of hundreds of references, not all of which had necessarily made use of the result, yeah, no. I suppose. I mean, just, many right, many right. reference yeah. you know, things without making use yeah. of it. But if, so maybe some subset had a made use of the result. Absolutely. There's what a happens subset. then? Well, <laughs> again, I think there, there. I think when we first published it, again, I think there are a few people that were really quite irritated, and then others. This is how, how long ago now? Uh, we published about ten years ago, yeah. um, and we actually went back to some of the historical documents associated with it. He was friends, or he was mentored at one time by G.I. Taylor, okay. and so we could go back actually and find some correspondence with G.I. Taylor. Really, what was funny was that in very similar experiments, G.I. Taylor had given other people you know, really complained about other people's experiments also for these secondary flows. Mm -hmm. And G.I. Taylor and, and Rolf Bagnold clearly had correspondence, actually had gotten from archives in really? England. You uh -huh. know, you can see correspondence between them. Yeah. Um, I, I, what I really think is that G.I. Taylor realized it was wrong. But Bagnold, because he's a fellow of the Royal Society, could mm -hmm. still publish it. Mm -hmm. It got out again mm -hmm. over time. People just kept referencing it. So I think there were probably people that knew that it wasn't quite right. Mm -hmm. Um, probably never realized that it would be a paper that would be referenced hundreds and hundreds <laughs> yeah, of times. <laughs> um, so again, I think there is this need uh, 
for us sometimes to go back and really look at, really carefully look at some of the work. Does this that make we you reference. question other things? Like, uh, yeah. It does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny how again sometimes these things just happen, and, yeah. and um, because it's old, people refer to it, even though it may not be what you really think it is. Uh-huh. Fascinating conversation. Thank you very much. Well, thank it's you. Been really delight. Thank you very much. This is Harry Dankovich, editor of Applied Mechanics Reviews. Thank you for listening to this Applied Mechanics Reviews audio interview with Professor Melanie Hunt from the California Institute of Technology. Please remember to come back for more reflections on all aspects of applied mechanics research and professional engagement.